Well, good afternoon, and thank you again for your patience. My name is Mark Elliott. Uh, I'm a professor of Chinese and Inter-Asian history here at Harvard, uh, also vice provost for international affairs, and uh, former director of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. And I've been asked by the director, Professor Michael Sony, to, uh, on his behalf, extend a warm welcome to all of you here uh, today for uh, our talk, uh, Chinese De-Extremification Campaign in Xinjiang, uh, by Adrian Zenz of the European School of Culture and Theology. Uh, I want to begin by uh, thanking uh, the co-sponsors of today's event, uh, and they include the PhD Committee on uh, Inter-Asian and Altaic Studies, uh, the East Asian Legal Studies Program, represented here by Professor Bill Alford, uh, and uh, uh, the Prince Awalid bin Talal Islamic Studies Program, uh, represented here by its Executive Director, Harry Bastermagian. Harry, where are you? There you are. Thanks. So uh, just a word uh, to everybody. This event is being audio recorded, but there is no video recording uh, today. Uh, and after uh, Dr. Zenz's remarks, which will last approximately 40 minutes or so, uh, we will uh, do the usual uh, Q&A uh, and open the floor up to questions from the audience. Everyone here, I presume, is uh, aware to some degree of recent developments in Xinjiang. Well, for nearly 10 years, there has been increased ethnic and political tension in the region. During the past 12 to 18 months, the situation has become considerably more dire, uh, with mounting evidence of restricted religious, academic, and personal freedoms, and of the mass incarceration of hundreds of thousands of Chinese citizens, nearly all of them Muslims, mostly Uyghurs, but also Kazakhs and Kyrgyz. On apparent suspicion of supporting Islamic fundamentalism or extremism, of having sympathies for Xinjiang independence, or of being insufficiently loyal to the party, or some combination of one or more of these or other charges. <clears throat> Reports on the establishment of these so-called uh, re-education centers uh, began to appear in the media a little over a year ago. Uh, and have now received considerable attention in the world media and have also come to the attention of various parliamentary bodies around the world uh, as well as at the UN. These centers uh, go by a variety of names in Chinese, uh, the most official, I think, being uh, but there are a bunch of other names, uh, very unstandardized if you look around. In English, uh, they're called uh, re-education camps or re-education centers. Uh, some uh, media voices have given them other names, such as internment camps or concentration camps, both names going back to uh, the 19th century, in fact. Our speaker, who has recently published the authoritative study on the creation of these centers, based on Chinese documents primarily, sees them as part of a, quote, large-scale extrajudicial detention system. And estimates are that somewhere between well, several hundred thousand, perhaps as many as a million people, are being held in these facilities, which continue to be built today. 
The significant deterioration of the situation in Xinjiang is a cause for great concern among many China scholars. Quite a number of us can remember visiting the region when ethnic tension was not such an issue uh, and when security concerns were non-existent. My own first visit to Xinjiang came in 1983, uh, a very different place than Xinjiang today, for sure. Today, we see that the region is under strict surveillance and that mobility of certain individuals is greatly limited. Many of our colleagues at universities in Xinjiang, including a number who have provided academic guidance and assistance to Harvard students, have been taken away and held incommunicado. The voices of intellectuals, poets, artists, and writers have been largely silenced. In some, if reports of the widespread repression that is being visited upon Uyghurs and others in Xinjiang are true, we appear to be witnessing a violation of human rights on a mass scale. This situation is made even more distressing and confusing by the absence of much reliable local information about what is actually happening. To help us understand these developments, we turn today to Dr. Adrian Zenz. He is lecturer in social research methods at the European School of Culture and Thought in Korntal in Germany, which I believe is not far from Stuttgart, is that right? Dr. Zenz earned his PhD in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge. That's the real Cambridge, the original Cambridge. <laughs> having studied before that at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. He's an expert on Chinese minority policies with a research focus on uh, ethnic policy and recruitment uh, in Tibetan regions and in Xinjiang. Uh, he is engaged in, in researching minority language requirements and government recruitment in, Chinese, uh, in China's Tibetan areas, as well as in Xinjiang, focusing especially on the recruitment of security-related personnel and minority teacher recruitment. Uh, and as you see, uh, the title of his talk today, China's De-Extremification Campaign in Xinjiang. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Adrian Sens. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Mark, for this very helpful introduction. Thank you for the kind invitation to Harvard. It's nice to be back, in a sense. I've not been back in 24 years. I attended Harvard Summer School in 1994. If I remember correctly, you know, I'm at a, getting to that age where you have to start to try to remember what year something was in. So anyways, it's uh, good to be back. Um, even though the topic of today's talk is rather sobering, um, Mark already did a very good job at giving us um, a general introduction of sorts to the region. Not planning to give a detailed uh, ethnographic um, explanation. Uh, as you can see from the map, uh, we are talking today about the so-called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is home to about 11 to 12 million Uyghurs out of a, a regional population of 24 million. The region has close to 14 million Muslim minorities in total. This also includes uh, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, uh, Tajik, uh, Hue, and a number of other minorities. 
Now, to jump straight into the analysis, I'm a bit of a uh, data analyst among anthropologists. I think I was one of the very few Cambridge PhDs who had um, charts in the PhD thesis and voluntarily attended an SPSS uh, data analysis seminar, which my fellow uh, students had to attend because of their research funding, knowing that they would never ever touch it again um, after their fieldwork. But here I am, and I have brought a few charts for you today uh, to give you a wider context. Now, uh, we know there have been ethnic tensions in the regions, of course, uh, Xinjiang was taken over by Mao Zedong's armies in 1949. Uh, the Uyghurs did have a brief uh, period of attempting an independent state. Uh, they have been a sort of very loosely governed people for a long part of history with Chinese overlordship, uh, very changeable and fluid arrangements as is so typical of these Western Chinese and Central Asian regions. Now, this chart here shows the red line uh, national dispo rural disposable income as a percent of urban disposable income. What this, is, what this is supposed to show is the inequality gap between the countryside and the cities, um, which is one of the major axes of inequality, socioeconomic inequality in China. You see under Deng Xiaoping, <clears throat> rural incomes were just over half of urban average disposable incomes. If it was at 100%, then rural and urban incomes were the same. So the lower the curves go, the higher the inequality, the higher the income gap between urban and rural. You can see with decollectivization and then marketization, especially proposed and promoted under Jiang Zemin in the 1990s, the so-called socialist market economy, these discrepancies increased very significantly. The national level is the blue line. You see, with a little delay, uh, I'm sorry, the national level is the red line. You see that in both Kashgar, which is a Uyghur majority prefecture in the south, has a, a Uyghur population of uh, 90%, so it epitomizes a, a Muslim Uyghur uh, region, and Xinjiang, the drop was much steeper, as shown by the red arrow. The gap uh, between national and uh, Xinjiang and then Kashgar uh, was uh, substantial, meaning the inequality, the difference between rural and urban incomes, especially in Kashgar, if you follow the green line, which is the lowest and stays lower until very recently, uh, this income inequality was more pronounced. Now, the, f the little fire here is by the year of 2009, which is the year marking the Urumqi riots, which were widespread riots in Xinjiang between the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese. And it's just interesting to look at this from a little socioeconomic perspective to understand some of the wider context in which uh, all of this is happening. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping has proposed the moderately prosperous society, which originally Hu Jintao um, talked about in the uh, late 2000s, but he's really uh, working towards reaching this goal. As you can see, progress is being made. But of course, all of this happened after uh, decades of strong inequality, which is the, the wider context.
A similar thing can be observed for minority education. Under Deng Xiaoping, there were strong, what we call, means of privilege quotas. This was, of course, artificial. Competition was artificially reduced. The minzu, the minorities, minzu uh, means ethnic minority in Chinese, for those who don't know it, um, got significant numbers of, addition, of added points in order to enter university. There were even quotas to ensure. You see, the ethnic minority population in Xinjiang is the black line, about 60%, roughly. The number of tertiary students approximated the population, even though education was much worse. You see, the number of secondary students was much lower, but then increased dramatically. Under Jiang Zemin, market competition was introduced. The minority quotas were gradually abolished. The result is while secondary minority enrollment increased to reach minority population share, meaning the same percentage of the population of minorities would uh, get a secondary education as the Han majority. The tertiary enrollment share fell dramatically. Again, the low point was in 2009, the year of the riots. The state responded. As you can see, this quota has increased again by about 10 percentage points, but it has not done so by helping minority students per se. It has done so by promoting Chinese language skills among the ethnic minorities. So a lot of those who enter university now, a lot of the Uyghurs who enter university in Xinjiang, do this based on studying in Chinese, passing the university entrance examination in Chinese as opposed to in the Uyghur or in the Kazakh language. You see an inversion of educational opportunities. The Minzu or ethnic minorities made up nearly 70% of those enrolled in primary school, graduating from primary school, but only 25% of those admitted to university in 2006, whereas the Han share increased from 31% to 75%, an inversion of educational opportunity back in the years just before the writing began and before this whole uh, security situation exploded. Now, we also have to understand that the geopolitical significance of the province of Xinjiang, the region of Xinjiang, increased dramatically with Xi Jinping's signature initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative. The minorities have traditionally been at the periphery of the Chinese world. They were almost a bit like the barbarians around the Chinese empire, which uh, learned from Chinese culture. With the Belt and Road, this is now changing. Xinjiang is actually called the core region or the hub of the Silk Road Initiative as China is looking outward rather than merely inward. And this, of course, justifies, even is considered a necessity to integrate the Western minorities more firmly into the Chinese nation. And therefore, we should not at all be surprised to see a greater trend towards assimilation, assimilating minorities in terms of culture, language, and uh, other aspects. A brief chart on police recruitment. Um, we are comparing the Tibet Autonomous Region in blue and 
the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in red. This is per capita so that we can compare per advertised new police positions or security related positions per capita. We see that during the riots in Lhasa, which were in 2008, and those in the Romchi in 2009, the number of per capita advertised security positions tripled or quadrupled. However, all of this between 2007 and 2010 is absolutely nothing compared to what has happened since. In 2011, Chen Chuenguo became the new party secretary of Tibet. Under him, police and security recruitment skyrocketed, of course, coinciding with the um, onset of Xi Jinping as China's ruler. Yeah. We also see a spike in Xinjiang. Then, Tibet has calmed down. Tibet has been officially pacified. There's very few incidents uh, happening. So this has uh, been going down dramatically. However, Uyghur separatists were able to carry out, out attacks uh, outside of Xinjiang and other parts of China. Uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing, Kunming train station. The Chinese state declared a war on terror uh, on the Uyghurs, of course, a war on terror had occurred before, even since 2001. Um, China sort of launched uh, onto the whole 9-11 trend. But um, the Chinese security state really took off, especially when Chen Chuenguo, the party secretary of Tibet, was then brought to Xinjiang. And you can see that things have gone through the roof. The Chinese have established a police state in Xinjiang like no other. And this is the data to sort of support that thesis. Now, the main focus of my talk is on what has happened most recently in the region with the so-called re-education campaign. What is the historical context? China had a national re-education through labor system, also called Laodong Jiaoyang, or short Lao Jiao, established under Mao Zedong in order to domesticate opponents of socialism, dissidents and others who needed a, a correction of different sorts. The system was then abolished in 2013. It was considered to be no longer appropriate for a state or society governed by law. The government itself abolished it. What distinguishes the system is it is extra legal. There are no legal proceedings. Nobody sentenced. There's no formal charge. This also differentiates it, for example, from the reform through labor, the Laogai system. Now, from the early 2000s, a new term arose called transformation through education, or Jiaoyu Zhuanghua, however one translates it. It arose in the context of treating Falun Gong sect members. It was also used and continues to be used in the context of cursed isolated detoxification of drug addicts, which in China is done by the police. And now, this concept is being mentioned and applied in the context of re-educating Muslims in Xinjiang. The methodology for my research is um, mostly Chinese sources, government work reports, budget reports, state or local media reports, public recruitment notices, public bids, which often contain some very detailed uh, facility descriptions, and we also have some visual evidence, both from government reports or satellite or from journalists who travel in the region. And uh, there's some very strong correlations if we put all that data together. 
Now, to understand a little bit about the context of what's going on in Xinjiang, various officials in the years before started to talk about some of the concept or the theory of de-extremification. Re-education actually occurs always in the context of de-extremification, of removing a so-called um, um, extremist religious thought from people. Officials were saying that in a typical Muslim village, most people are just influenced by the surroundings, but you have about 30%, and other officials would give different percentages, who are polluted by extremism. That's quite a significant share, if one would take that seriously. The latter group requires concentrated education work. When the 30% are transformed, the village is basically cleansed. Now, back then, re-education only took place among a relatively small share of the population among so-called key persons or target persons. What has happened since is Chen Chuenguo, he doesn't anything, he doesn't do anything below 100 percent. Yeah, when he uh, came on, he wrecked up everything, police recruitment, social control, everything, and he apparently is implementing more or less what has been stated and espoused by officials in the region for a number of years. He's simply actually doing it, yeah? which is unbelievable, of course, but in Radio Free Asia interviews with local officials, local officials stated to RFA that they had been given internment quotas of 10 to 20% of the population, in some cases higher, meaning a certain percentage of the population simply needs to be detained and put into re-education camps. Why? And, and that without formal charges, necessarily. Those who get formal charges, they go into different parts of the criminal system in China. Uh, this is on top of regular detentions and prison population and imprisonments. This is completely separate. We have to understand there's two separate systems. Well, this is simply for treatment. Re-education re is like a treatment. For people who have like a, a medical condition, it's like free medical treatment, some documents said. So this is the context. What happened in 2017? In the summer, we first had reports about large-scale detentions. Information was given by various sources on the ground that talked about late March, early April as the onset of an absolutely unprecedented detention campaign. People were simply disappearing by the thousands and thousands. Now. In a, on March 30th, to come into effect April 1st, the Xinjiang government issued a so-called de-extremification ordinance that explicitly, among some of the points, stipulated the use or mandated the use of re-education. Very strong coincidence in terms of timing. If we look at government bid documents that uh, specify the construction of a new re-education facility, and these are bits that specifically mention transformation through education. Um, we see that they were very rare before Chen Chuenguo assumed power. So you can see over here. There's a single one in April 2016. That's the only one I was able to find, of course. This is only the ones I was able to find. So if anybody has any other, just let me know, okay? Um, Chen Chuenguo assumed power in August, September. 
he was still busy recruiting all that police and building all those convenience police stations and establishing other forms of social control at the time. Here in March is when the new de-extremification ordinance came into effect. We see a very strong peaking, especially in the summer months, and then it's gone down a bit since. We need to keep into account, of course, uh, by no means all re-education camp construction is uh, reflected in these bits. We cannot at all assume that. This is only one indicator variable that we can use. But it does yield very interesting results. Now, 76 government bids show that new facilities have been constructed, but also that existing facilities have been converted for long-term use. Existing facilities, sometimes they're party schools, sometimes they're different facilities. There have also been reports of um, regular public schools being converted to re-education camps. One of the bid documents pertains to a primary school. Firstly, dormitories were added. People now stay there over longer periods of time. Kitchens, upgraded sanitary facilities, heating for all seasons, meaning some of these facilities were for short-term or daytime use and they were now being upgraded for long-term use. We don't know how long. Comprehensive security features were added, um, mostly to existing facilities. This just gives an example. In uh, Maralbashi County, Kashgar Prefecture, which I, had, which I had mentioned, is one of the uh, regions with a 90 or 91% Uyghur population share in the very south uh, of uh, Xinjiang uh, region. A legal system training school. These schools have different, there's different types of schools, they have different names. I really don't have uh, time for a lot of details in this presentation for reasons of time. One could go into much more detail on that. And of course, um, the research report that I published on this is publicly available. One bit talked about, just to give you an idea of some of the details that one can find in these bit documents, uh, renovating uh, heating pipes, um, a guard room, a meeting room, a bathroom, four watchtowers, hardening floor space, and the satellite images show the hardened floor space. I assume they do that. There's nothing green, there's no trees. You can't hide anywhere, and you can't dig. You cannot dig a tunnel because it's, it's completely concrete covered, the entire, uh, the entire areas. Security nets, security doors and windows, fences, and so on. And a second bit even talks about Armed police living quarters, a hospital, detention room, and a supermarket. Over 10,000 square meters. I guess you guys think more in square feet. So maybe you can convert that. One foot is one meter is 3.1 foot, so a square foot should be about, about, 10, times, yeah. about 10 times, yes. Now, with the help of a, um, a student from Canada called Sean Zhang, who has identified a bunch of locations. Um, I went about to verify some of the satellite images related to these camps, which are very fascinating. Uh, here you have red underlined the bid document. The bid document talks about an address. It says the address, identify the region on Google Maps. This is a bid uh, for, again, in Kashgar Prefecture for a re-education school. 27,000 square meters at a cost of 140 million RMB. 
The first signs of construction are evident from the buildings before it was just fields. Completed in the picture shown on November, which also fits the timing. Close-up pictures show, and this is very characteristic of re-education facilities in contrast to detention facilities or prisons. They have uh, often relatively large open spaces, and these spaces are segregated and separated by high fences. The shadows give an indication of how tall they are. They're like two, floor, two stories tall or something like that with barbed wire at the top. And often each building itself is surrounded by a fence. So it makes very good crowd control, which is very necessary because uh, these facilities are very overcrowded and some of them, uh, former detainees have said some of them house up to 6,000 um, detainees. And uh, the open spaces also, some photos that circulate on the internet indicate some of these open spaces are being used for teaching. Now the watchtowers also, as you can see in the one bit, of course, described watchtowers. The watchtowers of re-education camps are often square. You can see they're often blue or red. They have a color. This also shows the shadow. See how tall those things are. Detention center, often these camps, re-education camps, are often built right next to detention centers, existing detention centers. Detention centers often have these little mushroom-shaped watchtowers and the walls look like those. <coughs> so one can often distinguish them. This is a second example, a very large facility, and that's a legal tra system transformation through education school and vocational training school. So mixing vocational training and re-education in the same bid. 82,000 square meters times 10 for square footage. You see, again, it's built right next to an existing detention center that shows all the typical signs of a detention. Here you can see the address, where it's located, Yachan County. Yeah, that's also in Kashgar Prefecture, that's where these examples are from, but you find them, of course, everywhere. Prior to the construction bit, it's an empty space. Then building starts, eight buildings have been commissioned. And it's very interesting, this eight building design with a very large courtyard in the middle, you find that in that exact same design, almost with the same square footage, actually, you find in several locations. Uh, it's like a blueprint for some of these camps. Finished. Again. <clears throat> Classic feature is a very large courtyard compared to the detention center down there, which has hardly any courtyard because there's no outdoor teaching happening there. That's the difference. Again, you have a re-education camp watchtower, this time red square, and down there the detention center watchtowers, which are like white mushrooms. This is the Wall Street Journal. They visited a facility in Topan based on informant reports. They were able to snap this photo from outside. You can see the watchtower, the fence, the wall with barbed wire on top, the fence in front of it, and next to it is a police station, this classic pillar. And this is the parking lot where they took. 
I've heard that by now it probably would not be possible to take these kinds of photos. The Chinese are now very careful to not let anybody come close enough to these facilities to take a photo like that. So this was, um, um, I think, in June or July this year. And down below you have the uh, satellite image of the exact same facility. And you can very nicely match even the, the pillar of the police station here with the shadow that it casts. The police station, the exact same sort of, uh, not octagonal, but the same sort of uh, uh, design with these uh, 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 angled sides. And then right next here, the wall here. And then if we looked further, we could see, uh, I, I didn't put this on this slide, uh, we see many more of the details. And we see all the classic features of a re-education camp, with the watchtower and the fences and all, all the classic features. German TV crew was able to take secret footage out of a taxi or car, uh, drove right past a camp. Uh, very nice uh, footage. This is a screenshot from their video. A uh, very clear shot of, again, blue square-shaped watchtower. High walls, barbed wire, you notice um, there's uh, mass solid iron bars in front of the windows also matches a lot of these bit descriptions. Now, of course, the Chinese government would like us to think that this is um, a very beneficial type of vocational skills training, what's going on in there. Now, vocational skills training certainly does take place in Xinjiang and has been a massive campaign. Um, the interesting thing is, though, some of the bids for vocational skills training facilities say that they need to have surrounding walls, fences, police stations, surveillance systems, equipment for visiting family members, that's um, a, video a video conferencing system that's typically found in prisons, so you can, you can visit a prisoner without meeting face-to-face. -face. There's also bids for vocational skills training centers that are stated to meet the city's critical security need. This is Karamai City in northern Xinjiang to subject key persons to re-education, so quite a, quite a link there in the government-issued uh, uh, description. And, um, of course, then we also have a lot of recruitment announcements, uh, which very suddenly came up in April and May last year. Hundreds of trainers in multiple counties, altogether uh, several thousand of these sort of trainers. Most of them needed no more than a middle school degree and Chinese language skills. If you look at comparable announcements for other parts of the country, or even for Xinjiang in what is actually a vocational training college, uh, these positions typically require a university degree in a related relevant subject. But we likely have a continuum of facilities. They can blend over. Some maybe have more skills training. Others are more purely political indoctrination. Uh, indoctrination, of course, you can find even in the public school system uh, in Xinjiang or anywhere in China for that matter. Uh, so it is... Um, there will be different types of facilities. Like if when you hear of incidents of torture in a facility, that doesn't mean that all of them will be the same. Yeah? So there's complexity. This is a picture of a, this is from a government report. Uh, Hotan Prefecture, again a Uyghur majority region. Officials visit a vocational skills education training center. Tall fences with a barbed wire are evident in the background. That's a very secure way to learn your skills, I would say. Certainly, you can leave your wallet anywhere. Nobody's going to break in and steal your wallet in there. 
if you have one, if you, if you can bring one in. Closed style centralized vocational skills training. That's the title of the government report for Batu County, again in Kashgar Prefecture. The report said that in January, 2,200 persons were trained. I believe this was for three months intensive. You can see them sort of marching. And you see, again, the classic large empty courtyard, large empty spaces surrounded by tall buildings. Um, many of, much of the discussion focuses on number estimates. Number estimates are inherently speculative and problematic. Um, a particular leaked document that was uh, picked up by Japanese Newsweek, supposedly from a, a public security authority somewhere in Xinjiang, origin cannot be verified. Um, that document stated 892,000 detainees in March this year or February this year. When you upscale that, because several uh, cities were not included in that, you would get at just uh, over 1 million, uh, 11, that's 11.5% 11 of Xinjiang's Muslim minority population aged 20 to 79, according to the 2010 census and then extrapolated by 2015 population data. Now that share matches quite nicely with what a number of officials have told Radio Free Asia about detention quotas they were given of 10% upward. Various sources indicate a lower estimate of at least several hundred thousand. I think that's a conservative estimate. Very likely we do not have less than 1,000 facilities because Xinjiang has 1,200 administrative units between the township and the prefecture level and several government documents from 2014 to 16. Those government documents were actually quite honest in uh, describing this whole system. Um, describe a multi-tiered system at uh, multiple administrative levels. And we have uh, among the procurement bits evidence of facilities on all administrative units, including village. Now, whichever estimate you prefer, any of them would exceed the entire former national re-education through labor system in all of China that was abolished in 2013, which according to official data, had 160,000 persons interned in 350 facilities. When you combine this with visitor reports that talk about empty roads, empty bazaars, deserted villages, uh, boarded up houses and shops, um, it is very likely that we're looking at a very high number of uh, detained persons, uh, quite likely the upper end of our estimate. Now, China's official position on the camps is very interesting. Um, it's interesting to see how it's changing. In April or May this year, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs was asked about these camps and they said, well, we've not heard about any camps. Then when it came to the United Nations, the anti-discrimination hearings, uh, in August, China was forced to respond to allegations of a very large extrajudicial detention campaign. The official response was, with respect to criminals involved only in minor offenses, the authorities provide them with assistance and education by assigning them to vocational education and employment training centers to acquire, implement skills and legal knowledge. Now, on the surface, a lot of what the Chinese responded 
looks like a denial. But actually, if you closely look at this, having studied the re-education system, uh, it's, it's quite a strong acknowledgement. Criminals and minor offenses, there's no talk about legal proceedings applied to them because the sentence before that talks about those who are formally charged. So a minor offense could be um, having some kind of religious material, uh, some kind of religious thought. Education, of course, takes place. Education can be anything, including re-education, political education, employment training, likely takes place in many of these facilities uh, in some form or other. Legal knowledge is taught in all of them. We know that from official government reports. They actually say that what happens in these camps is learning Chinese and learning about the law. Then the Chinese ambassador to the United Kingdom said the education and training measures taken by the local government of Xinjiang has helped those lost in extremist ideas. It is time to stop blaming China for taking lawful and effective preventative measures. Now, the re-education campaign is described as taking lawful and effective preventative measures. Preventative is something you do before something has happened, right? So detaining 10 to or 20% of a Muslim population for no particular reason other than that a, in actual reality, fairly small percentage of the Uyghurs um, have radicalized themselves, and that is a fact. Uyghurs have radicalized themselves uh, they have been affected by a radical, um, the rise of global jihad. Of course, in the entire context of um, disaffection with um, Chinese uh, rule and all the discrimination that they have perceived in that context. Uh, we could go into details on that. Um, there have been, of course, what we would call attacks, um, uh, acts of resistance, terror attacks, however you call them. Um, Global Times on August, 14, uh, August 14th wrote, China is turning to preventative measures according to laws. The ways China has adopted for de-radicalization are more stringent, more stringent, yet they worked. And the more stringent, the article compares it to what Europe has done. Basically says what Europe is doing to stop uh, Muslim uh, radical terrorism and radicalization is not working. But what China is doing is, is more stringent but it's working. That's where we're at now. That's the status quo in terms of the Chinese response, pretty much. Preventative apparently is the internment of a population without evidence of criminal activity or legal proceedings. Those who are put into camps often, in many instances, do not know why they are in a camp, nor do they know when they can get out, nor do their relatives know oftentimes in which camp they are or why they're in the camp or when they can get out. That's the situation, basically. Some do. Uh, one of the criteria for getting put into the camps is if you have anything religious on your cell phone, even a government-approved Quran translation, or if you have any contact with abroad, if you've been an overseas student, if, if this, you, you need not have had any contact with any uh, Uyghur uh, splittist or other group, nothing at all. You simply go to Harvard University, learn something, uh, come back or be in touch or call your mother. Your mother is related to you. Your mother has you overseas, so your mother is liable to be put in a camp. You are liable to be put in a camp. In fact, if 
you as a Uyghur return home from abroad, you are 100% guaranteed to be put in a camp, which is why Germany and likely Sweden are stopping any deportation of Uyghurs based on uh, humanitarian grounds. Now, where is this all headed, or what is some of the deeper attitude or perspective behind all this? I could greatly expand that section for reasons of time. I have to be fairly brief, also in my conclusion, um, just to understand a little bit more about the very substantial topic of the Chinese state, or the, also to, to a lesser extent the Han majority view of the uh, ethnic minorities in China. Uh, I think a very characteristic statement, perhaps one of the most characteristic statements I've ever come across, was uh, issued by Zhang Yijiung, deputy head of the United Front Work Department, during the 19th Party Congress, which was in autumn last year. He said, all of you, and that was a group of journalists, may have noticed the cultural performances, meaning dancing, you know, exhibitions and costumes of ethnic minorities while traveling to minority areas throughout the country. Even in Beijing, one can taste the special snacks of all ethnic groups. This is precisely the result of our protection efforts. Now, if you are an ethnic minority in China, you may just about define your unique identity a little bit wider and deeper than offering your ethnic snack to the Han in Beijing, or dancing around in your costume, made in Guangzhou, uh, or um, um, showing off a cultural performance uh, uh, wherever it is, often choreographed in certain uh, tourist-dominated contexts. There's language, there's identity, there's religion. So much of minority identity is bound up in these things, and especially in religion the Tibetans with Buddhism, the Uyghurs, Kazakh with Islam, right? It just goes to show that the accepted performance of minority identity is often very superficial. An eyewitness to one of the re-education camps who was able to visit, he was able to visit the re-education camp, a Uyghur himself, who was then able to flee to Turkey and was there interviewed by the BBC. Uh, he said, they, and he's talking about the Uyghurs in these re-education camps, they were like robots. They seemed to have lost their souls. They behaved as if they weren't aware of what they were doing. Now, the top part is perhaps one, a very characteristic sentence of the Chinese state view on minorities. The bottom sentence is, for me, a characteristic statement on the effect of the re-education campaign. On, on the Uyghur and Kazakh and other peoples. It's a forced change of the very core of your being. That is the goal. The goal is to really thoroughly change the people deep within. And to be honest, that I mean, I leave that without commenting. <clears throat> so what is the long-term agenda? The vision is, of course, a Chinese nation, the Chinese term is Zhonghua Minzu, that's actually a, one would have to de-explain that term a bit, there's not the time really for it, a multi-ethnic Chinese nation under CCP leadership, 
China envisions itself as a multi-ethnic state. There must be ethnic minorities. Both past empires have derived their glory and state status from it. And the current Chinese state also very much uh, sees it this way. Uh, I'm strongly of the opinion that what is going on in Xinjiang is not to exterminate or kill the, uh, the, the Uyghurs. It's, there's, no, uh, there's no intentional genocide, in my opinion. I'd be very surprised if that would be the case. Um, because the ideology is to change the people and integrate them into the Chinese nation. And they're supposed to be happy and glorious ethnic citizens of a glorious Chinese nation under CCP leadership. That's really what this is all about. Now, we can understand the assimilation or integration project from two particular angles, in my opinion. One is a more racial, cultural angle. Um, to understand this, one of uh, China's eminent anthropologists, Fei Xiaotong, talked about the fact that the gradual, or his view, which is widely echoed in Chinese state circles, that the gradual amalgamation of all ethnic minorities into the Han core culture is an inevitable historical process. In this context, of course, any cultural distance between Han and minorities in terms of language, customs, religion, is increasingly viewed as a liability as a security hazard even, as a matter of state security. Which is one of the reasons why Chinese language is being taught in the re-education camps, why the internees are watching Chinese television. The second axis along which the integration is occurring is uh, the communist-socialist uh, angle. Uh, conformity to what Xi Jinping has uh, emphasized as core socialist values. Uh, here we are looking at the gradual disappearance of alternative ideologies to socialism, communist communism, especially religion, of course, classic perspective of religion as the opium of the masses by which they are deceived. Now, religion has in fact turned out to be the potentially most formidable opponent or perceived foe of the Chinese socialist state. It has not disappeared with material progress. That's the tenet of communism. Religion will eventually appear once the material base is changed, once there's socioeconomic equality, etc., etc. So now the state is really forcing the issue through tried old methods, the tried old method of re-education, which is, of course, a classic tool of many communist states and of course was one of the classic tools under Mao Zedong, is in particular. And with this slightly complex picture, I am ending my presentation and hope um, it was mostly understandable. Thank you. I think it's safe to say it was completely understandable, not just mostly understandable. If I could, while the audience is uh, collecting its thoughts, if I can begin um, with a question or two about the, the geographical distribution of the, these, these camps. Um, you referred to quite a number in Kashgar Prefecture, which is very big. Um, and I just wondered if you can give us some sense of 
uh, how many roughly the proportion are in the southern, in so-called Nanjiang, in the southern part of Xinjiang below the Tian Shan Mountains, how many are in Beijing, and how many would be in the Turpan, uh, Turpan region or in the Ili region, those being the four basic areas into which Xinjiang is usually divided, and the Uyghur population being primarily in the southern part of, uh, of Xinjiang. Do you have any, any, any sense of that? Uh, yes. Um, now, the, uh, the bid documents that I analyzed uh, do have a significant concentration in the southern Uyghur majority regions and also particular in, particularly in different uh, counties uh, in Kashgar, but um, they're a fairly poor proxy, in my opinion, of actual distribution. For example, seven or eight of these bid documents uh, pertain to one particular camp that's being expanded with different buildings. Um, also, as I have said, we cannot assume that um, all re-education facility construction has a bid notice attached to it, or that I was able in my research to find um, all the relevant bid documents. Mm. Therefore, in my reports, I've always been very cautious to um, talk about uh, regional distribution because I do not believe that the data that I published um, in the order gives a fully, yeah, fully authoritative picture of that. I, uh, I think uh, 40 of 68 counties have some kind of uh -huh. bid notice attached to it. You can find some camp notices in the um, Chinese majority regions, um, city of Karamei, um, some other parts um, in the in-between major, the in-between. Um, counties that have a lot of Kazakh populations, such as Ili and others. Mm. Um, you do, uh, there's not any, well, there's I think only one or two related to Urumqi, but according to anecdotal evidence, there's quite a, a fair bit of re-education going on in Urumqi, simply that we don't have the documents to back that up. One further, and just, just a point of information kind of a question, what's the difference between a detention center and a re-education center, apart from the different shape of the watchtower roofs, which you were yes. showing us. A detention center is a, a facility uh, where people are kept typically for up to 15 days, although they can be kept there longer, which on the one hand, they're being kept there to evaluate whether formal criminal charges are gonna be pressed against a suspect or not. So it's basically a place where suspects are being kept. There are also places um, where persons can be kept for a limited amount of time. I think in the law it's more or less 15 days um, as a lighter form of punishment or a warning um, in case criminal charges are not uh, pressed. And they would therefore be, therefore they're just part of the formal um, uh, system. So if somebody is, is brought to a, a detention center, they may either be sent home after a couple of weeks, they may be sent to a re-education center, or they may be sent into the criminal system and potentially to, to prison, is that? Now, um, the reality on the ground is apparently very messy, meaning detention, uh, re-education camps are so overflowing that there are reports, this one uh, eyewitness from Kazakhstan or who's a Kazakh who, who fled to Kazakhstan, reported of receiving re-education in a detention center for a certain amount of time. And they're not limited to 15 <laughs> days, but then he was transferred to another facility. 
which was worse, uh, he said. Another eyewitness report said uh, he was three months in a detention facility, absolutely crowded, and apparently they were authorities were trying to assess if people there should be transferred on or not. But to some extent, they were not being transferred on because the re-education camps were just completely overflowing. He eventually got out by um, building connections and paying a bribe. So uh, the, the system on the ground is quite messy. Also, I'm sure many of the thousands, especially in the early campaigns, were um, simply uh, detained and uh, transferred directly to re-education without any evaluation, simply because they had to meet population quotas. In the case, if somebody, if you get caught at a checkpoint, there's many parts of the Xinjiang security system I was not able to talk about. There's many checkpoints and they check cell phones and everything. There's plug in a device, the device automatically checks all the contents of the cell phone, uh, even deleted files apparently. And um, if anything is found, then you would be presumably then brought to a detention center to evaluate your status. So I think we'd like to open the uh open the floor for, for questions. Our, our normal procedure would be to ask uh, questioners to uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. Uh, today, I think, given the sensitivity of this topic, uh, we'll leave that up to you. And I recognize uh, Mr. Porter, Dr. Porter here. Hi, um, David Porter. I'm a graduate of the PhD program here um, in Chinese history. Thanks for this really important work you've been doing. Uh, this really interesting talk. I, I want to ask a little bit about the conclusions that you raised at the end. You say that you don't think the Chinese state is moving towards something like a genocide. I think that would, certainly we all hope that's true. Um, and you know, as you say, I think there isn't yet evidence that they have been doing things like that. But you suggest that the idea is that this, these camps will create a kind of happy, uh, well-integrated Uyghur population. Obviously, I think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical that they will achieve this goal. And I wonder if you have any sense from any of the work you've done on whether there is a time frame for this attempted project of making people into happy, you know, well-adjusted Han-like citizens. What happens if this project is deemed to have failed at that goal? I mean, is there a sort of sense of that you have of where the state might go if, in fact, the results of this are that are not that people end up being happy citizens of uh, you know, harmonious China. Now, uh, thank you. The evidence that we have so far from those who were able to escape or uh, the very few who were released and able to leave the country, um, the evidence of that is that um, they are severely traumatized. They are um, a very strong state of fear, as of course are all the relatives, all those who um, Anybody who speaks with Uyghurs who has been visiting the area talks about the, the atmosphere of fear that engulfs uh, the entire place. Also those who are not in the camps, of course, but inside the camps, it must be absolutely terrifying. And um, some of the former detainees report memory loss. Memory loss is a classic post-traumatic stress disorder symptom. So basically the Chinese state is very likely to produce a large number of heavily traumatized individuals. And as we all know, such individuals are far more likely than a normal, healthy, um, happy person to become lone wolves or to become extremists uh, with some sort of ideology. Uh, in terms of time frame, uh, in the past there were time frames. Uh, the, the most hardened or stubborn group was uh, given 20 days of re-education and the, the least uh, hardened groups was given four days. 
And that's history. Um, it's unheard of that anybody is released within 20 days or even a month or two or three or four. Um, in fact, from the information that we have, if somebody gets in, it's very uncommon for them to have been released. I personally know of persons who have been in there since the beginning of 2017. That's going on to two years. Just very recently, a document has circulated on Twitter that stated uh, the local authorities, uh, it's a government report, and they basically were saying, we need to seize the next two to three years to thoroughly finish the re-education. Uh, and that document was from September. Okay, so that's, um, there's not much evidence, but that's what we got. A uh, question in the, in the back here. Hi, I'm Stacey Van Vliet. I'll be an assistant professor next year at Indiana in Tibetan studies. Um, my question is about the uh, effect of this on families. Are there designated women's camps and uh, are children being separated from both of their parents for you know, either the duration of the stay or longer? Thank you. Um, there are some eyewitness reports that say that Either a camp had a women's section, it was separated by gender, or camps entirely for women. There's very little detailed evidence of that, or very little detailed statements. Um, of course, we have some pictures, some of which you have seen that show only men. Men are often particularly targeted. Uh, there is an impression that men are missing from streets and public life by those who visit. Um, there have been numerous reports and numerous evidence, although I've not really specialized on researching that aspect, of the fact that they have established uh, new kindergartens, new schools, new orphanages, or educational orphanage institutions, some of them heavily secured, specifically for the government reports talk about uh, disadvantaged uh, families uh, or special families that fall into certain groups, which is often like a euphemism that can include a whole range of population groups. So yes, there's significant evidence, and there have been also media reports on the fact that many children are orphaned because both ch parents are in a re-education camp. It's very hard to get any statistics or any, any uh, hard evidence on that. Please. Ross Terrell of the Fairbank Center. Uh, oh, you mentioned the extremists. Of course, not all Islamic believers are thus, and the Chinese government doesn't think all Islamic believers are extremists. Along those lines, do the camps allow any religious observance for the stricter Islamic believers? Friday prayers, presence of imams, prayer mats, some equivalent to a mosque meeting? Um, there's fairly strong evidence, and I have uh, um, the report and a number of photographs from a person, an academic who visited the region, who gave me some very detailed information that uh, the Xinjiang government has proceeded to close down and shut, uh, lock up many of the mosques in China. 
uh, uh, not in China, sorry, in Xinjiang, in the region. So many of the mosques are closed. Some of the smaller ones are being demolished. They're trying to focus them on the big ones, but the big ones, they have, they're very heavily secured. They have a um, metal gate. You have to scan your ID. You have to look into a facial recognition camera to be admitted. She went to several um, large mosques uh, during the eighth festival, the religious festival, uh, on Friday, and the mosque was shut. Nobody was going in, nobody was coming out. This was a very big mosque in Urumqi. Um, and uh, there was absolutely not a single sign that any religious activity was taking place in it. Now, in some mosques, of course, religious activity does take place, but it's very heavily restricted in general society. Now, in a re-education camp, there are reports, and of course, we only have anecdotal reports, that those uh, who are considered more conservative religiously are forced to eat, eat pork, drink alcohol, do all kinds of other things to make them realize, well, this is just harmless. Your religion is just indoctrinating you to not do these things. Also, party cadres have been uh, severely punished for not smoking in public or not smoking in front of elders, which is considered very inappropriate in, in a weaker religious culture. Um, and also, the Chinese have organized dance festivals. Some pictures were circulating of um, uh, places being converted into selling alcohol, etc. Shops are forced to sell alcohol, also during Ramadan. Uh, so, the kind of religious freedom that you would hope for in a re-education camp does not even exist outside a re-education camp. And um, in, I forget what time last year, there was announcements that um, in Uyghur and Kazakh regions that people had to hand over all copies, any copy of a Quran and any prayer mat. And it's not legal to say family prayers. In fact, one of the lone wolf and knife attacks that took place in uh, late 2016, early 2017, was sparked by a father who was just saying family prayers and the cadres were visiting and found out and he was being uh, penalized and he got very angry. And that's how this attack was apparently um, the last publicly known attack in Xinjiang took place through the prohibition of normal religious practice. Um, if you can give me any piece of evidence, or if you can tell me any Muslim religious practice that's safe to practice in Xinjiang without being liable to be put into a re-education camp, then please do so. I'm not aware of any. I believe the person sitting next to Professor Terrell also had a question. So since we're in that part of the room, I'll come back over here, I promise. Thank you for a great talk, very informative. Um, I wonder what's the similarity between this situation um, with the, the US war on terror and its, um, its own detention center that we all well know of Guantanamo and, Guantanamo and other places. I wonder if there's any cultural differences and similarities. Thank you. It's a very interesting question. Um, I do not claim to be an expert on that subject matter. Um, if I were asked my personal opinion, we do realize that the United States was um, opening detention in Guantanamo and, Guantanamo and other places um, in a way that would also be considered extra-legal, um, that different forms of torture were applied, um, just like we hear of torture occurring in Chinese re-education camps. Um, in my opinion, um, well, I'm not sure to what extent uh, how the United States assessed the internment 
what criteria were used in the internment of those people. I what I see is clearly a much stronger focus uh, like what the Xinjiang authorities did in 2014 and 15. They were identifying so-called extremist persons. It was a very small percentage of the population at the time. Uh, similarly, the United States has not gone and interned uh, 10 or more percent of the populations of the Muslim nations that they occupied. So I would see very major differences, but it's also certainly very interesting to maybe compare the similarities. Questions from, yes, please. Okay, just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew Murtha, Johns Hopkins, SICE. Uh, I have a question that may be a little bit outside of this, but but um, your, your, your wonderful talk and your research, I think, really uh, raises a number of important questions about China's in international relations. And particularly, you'd mentioned Belt and Road. and. Um, I'd like to come at it from a, from a different angle, which is to say it seems to me that this is not the kind of thing that you would want to be undertaking if you want to shore up uh, a positive relationship with uh, potential partner countries you know, that have a, you know, a fairly kind of large or uh, significant uh, uh, Muslim population. And I'm just curious if you're, do you have access to any of the debates or kind of discussions on, on whether that's even an issue, or is this something that is really um, uh, a, a matter of, of national identity and uh, kind of a, a stronger kind of national narrative that, that transcends this, this significant but nonetheless uh, transitory policy of Belt and Road? Yes, very um, relevant question. Now, I think we do need to understand the re-education campaign in the context of a much wider crackdown in China on religious freedom in general, also among house churches, also among uh, uh, Hui Muslims in Ningxia, other provinces and areas. Um, it is very much uh, Xi Jinping sort of, a bit like Chen Chuenguo, sort of, uh, in some ways going back to the roots and uh, going back to the ideological thought work that was in some ways maybe partially abandoned, partially, by Deng Xiaoping and the likes in the reform process of focusing on improving the material base. I believe the Chinese believe that the material base has now um, grown to an extent where uh, the ideological thought, thought work is now coming again to the forefront with regular academics, even intellectuals or artists or actors being subjected to mandatory political uh, courses in mainland China. We're talking Han Chinese here. So um, this has, be, uh, has to be seen in this context, but I do believe that the Chinese are trying to achieve a very definitive solution to the Uyghur problem in Xinjiang, because Xinjiang has become uh, geopolitically so important as part of the Belt and Road. And of course, if Xinjiang is just a perpetual police state, we have checkpoints every 200 meters and the highest police per capita uh, proportion in the world, and if that just goes on like this, uh, that makes, it makes business very difficult, it makes Xinjiang a very unattractive place to live. I think the Chinese are probably trying to literally turn, um, pacify it by force, so that one day you can cut the police force by half or more. You can remove a lot of the security f uh, installations because nobody dares to say anything, do anything. Everybody's so scared, so thoroughly scared, and their children are so thoroughly indoctrinated by being separated from their parents that you have created something like, or on the outside could, 
could be shown off as a happy place that yeah, you can say, oh, come on, so Xinjiang is the safest place in China. Used to be the least safe place. Yeah, look at what we have done, so successful. No extremists anymore. Uh, go and do your business, a happy Silk Road. The trains are leaving, uh, the trains are whistling, etc. So um, those are some of the thoughts that would come to my mind to answer your question. Just a very quick question. Um, I noticed in Xinjiang that many of the people who are working at the Czech stations are actually Uyghur or Kazakhs themselves. So do you know the ethnic composition of the people working in the camps? Is this the same situation? Thank you. Yeah. China had a very good practice of publishing minority quotas of cadres in statistical yearbooks in the early 2000s. And then in 2002 and 2003, they stopped doing that. Since then, we have no official statistical information on the ethnic composition of government workers anywhere in China. However, uh, as part of my police recruitment research, which would be a whole separate presentation, which I haven't done today. Um, You're here tomorrow though, right? Uh, yeah, tomorrow morning, yeah. I could do eight o'clock before my flight. <laughs> Mark's getting ideas. Well, we bought your ticket here and we're gonna buy you dinner, so didn't we tell you? Anyway, to answer your question, uh, it is very, well, it is not easy to find police recruitment outcomes that show ethnicity directly. Uh, many, however, of these documents do show names. Sometimes you can infer ethnicity from names. Um, and the few documents that I was able to find indicate a very high share of Uyghurs being recruited into the police force in Uyghur majority regions. These jobs, of course, are also very attractive to minorities. Um, police jobs in Xinjiang pay very well now. I'm talking about informal, uh, lower, lower level assistant police uh, who are contract based, who don't have employment guarantee, but they now come with very good job, fairly decent benefits, and they require very low educational requirements, no college required. Sometimes even just um, junior middle school is enough. So, um, of course, we do not know who all works in a re-education camp. One of the documents I saw this week stated as a form, very interesting interview with a former police officer from a re-education camp. He said his camp had about 230 police stationed in the camp. Um, first of all, thank you for coming and giving this very, very informative talk all the way from Germany. Um, yeah, I'm Arya Mualem, a PhD student in EALC. And my question uh, primarily pertains to this last slide and the long-term agenda, namely the scalability or possibility of the expansion of this system outside of Xinjiang, either one due to necessity or two, because it's considered um, successful within the autonomous region. One of the things that came up repeatedly during your talk was the overcrowding of both the detention centers and the um, re-education centers. So is it possible that they're becoming so overcrowded that they're going to have to expand outside of the province in order to meet these quotas? Um, or is, is it also possible that 
this same system could be exported and utilized for different purposes, given that, again, this isn't just about racial cultural assimilation. It could be used in other ideological contexts or uh, um, if, if it pertains primarily to Islam, perhaps uh, somewhere like Ningxia also. Um, again, given that Chen Chuanguo, um, in, his strategies were considered so successful in Tibet that then they were you know, uh, exported to, to Xinjiang. So what do you think the possibility is that this, this system could be um, expanded outside of the region? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. There's a very good possibility in my opinion, and I've written about this to an extent in an opinion piece uh, in foreign affairs. Um, in my opinion, there's a very good possibility that the system is going to be tested and tried and examined in Xinjiang and then adapted elsewhere in different ways, um, possibly as part of the social credit system. I would not be surprised if the Chinese state decides to use the re-education system to uh, move against uh, very resistant pockets of religious belief throughout China, which would be the Hui Muslims in Ningxia, pockets of, uh, strong pockets of Christianity. Um, I guess those are the two main ones that are being considered uh, dangerous because they're supposedly not indigenous. Um, as to the overcrowding, now there is some evidence that the system continues to expand. There are two sites, uh, one identified by the New York Times, that show a significant sign of expansion, both of the detention center a second one being built, a bigger one, and of a what is likely to be a secondary education facility in the same site, bigger than the first one, 114,000 square meter uh, area. And so um, then we have some very interesting reports, which are probably hard to corroborate, but they're very interesting, again from Radio Free Asia, on prison transfers that re-education uh, inmates, well, it's not actually, well, re-education detainees are transferred to prisons in uh, mainland China because of a situation where those who are running a camp... By mainland, you mean interior provinces of China? Mm, uh, east, eastern... Eastern China. Eastern China, yeah. Eastern China. Sorry, I misused that term a bit. Eastern China. Um, some of those running the camps or having important positions in the camps end up having their own relatives or family inside the same camp they're running, which just shows the scale of what is going on. And um, this was one of the reasons given in the report. Uh, the report talked about a, a, a swap, meaning that those in the other parts would then come to Xinjiang. So I'm not sure if that's equivalent to an expansion or not. But we, we do see signs of these facilities expanding now, since my report came out in uh, mid-May, um, the region has basically stopped issuing uh, government bids that mention these terms. So it's very hard to track uh, camp growth that way. Um, thanks very much for your presentation. I'm just wondering in terms of the response um, outside of China, um, in terms of um, this being kind of a, being on the popular sort of uh, mainstream media, it doesn't seem to have reached yet a level that maybe, per, you know, perhaps of things like what's going on in the U.S. with the Supreme Court and the 
occupations and other things like that, there is an effort that seems to be by legal scholars and various to raise this issue more in the public consciousness. Uh, in your, from your perspective, in do you see that if this becomes more of an issue, you know, among various um, stakeholders, whether it's Western governments or broader public, if there was more of a issue that this was on the agenda, uh, that um, there would be a you know, potential change in calculus in how this might be responded by from the uh, Chinese um, government side. You mentioned, you know, some of the justification by the official governments. Um, do you see any, or is it the fact, for example, now there's the trade war and it's, you know, so much more complicated what's going on that they would just potentially double down? Um, yeah. yeah, that's how does this all fit into the larger picture of U.S.-China relations and <coughs> China's relations with the rest of the world is a great question. Yes, yes, a very good question, very good question. Now, of course, depends what country you're talking about. The United States-China relationship has become, of course, very complicated and um, very high profile uh, in a number of ways. Now, the Trump administration is uh, interested to target China. The question is, uh, how interested is it to target China uh, in relation to the Uyghurs or on religious freedom? Um, I myself have spent some time, in, uh, well, have had some meetings in Washington, D.C. that would indicate that interest is high. Um, action might be moving ahead. Of course, it really depends how that's then perceived by the Chinese or how the Chinese can play it. Chinese can, of course, combine that uh, or portray it as a wider anti-China anti campaign by the United States as a hegemonic, as the, the hegemonic power. Um, once, uh, if several other nations would come together or, uh, through the United Nations and it, this would become a more multilateral uh, initiative, um, we might have different dynamics. Now, there are signs, of course, the Chinese have been forced to respond. Um, we don't see strong signs that the Chinese are directly responding to this on the ground. But I believe there is a possibility if this keeps going and if this continues to be a significant public relations liability, which it is developing into being, it's developing uh, into a public uh, relations liability for the Chinese because you have more and more media attention. And there is a possibility that that could uh, promote some kind of adoption, um, adaptation, such as phasing out sooner, or um, Chinese could, um, you know, take away the fences and the cameras and stuff, and then invite the Western press in, or you know, put up some vocational training things, you know, um, or enhance existing vocational training. Since you know we have such limited information, uh, that this could turn into a public relations campaign. That that is a possibility too. The question is within, the, just like the American government, dynamics are very complex with very different actors and interests, the same as on the Chinese side. The Chinese really want to nail this one from their perspective. And they do, they do believe that their method is working. I guess they, the Chinese must believe that this method is working because it's consistent with the ideology. If they didn't believe in it, then they would have to uh, uh, abandon it because they have to basically substitute God yeah, to, to, to bring it to a point. So, very interesting question. Yeah, question up here, and then maybe one or two after that will be done. Hi, um, thank you so much for the wonderful talk. Uh, my name's Austin Jordan. I'm a second year student in the PhD program in government here. Uh, my question concerns the experience of detainees after their release. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more about the effect um, of, their, of their imprisonment. 
Uh, you mentioned that they suffered for some, from some memory loss, but um, what do they typically do after their experience? Do they return just back to their job as normal? Um, what are the impacts on their home life? Um, has this had any ramifications on social trust within the province? I don't believe social trust in Xinjiang is at a very high point at all, but I don't have a lot of empirical evidence to back that up. But uh, we have, um, to your very interesting question, of course, we have not nearly enough material to properly answer it. Um, at the same time, some evidence suggests that um, uh, those who are released are told not to talk about it, and they don't. They don't even talk to their own children, to their own spouses about what happened. That's very, very anecdotal. Um, evidence. Um, there's some evidence that those who have come out uh, have a record on their file and it shows in their ID and if they go through checkpoints uh, they get flagged as a higher risk persons. Which is ironic because it should be the opposite, right? If you've been released from a re-education camp you should be considered a more trustworthy citizen. So there must be some kind of doubt. This is an inherent contradiction, right? <laughs> but uh, some very anecdotal evidence suggests that actually that is a significant disadvantage that can also get you barred from, um, uh, I think I seem to remember one person was not able to leave their village or area at all. They're basically confined to a place. In Xinjiang, you cannot freely travel. Yeah, if, if you, you, you need permit, yeah, especially, yes, if you're Uyghur. Or if you're flagged, I guess, you know. But especially if you're Uyghur, you need to get permits. You need to have a clear file. Uh, you can get stopped anywhere. There's so many checkpoints. It's become such a police state. Uh, movement is so tightly controlled. These are some of the information we have, and maybe PhDs like you in the future will go there and research their long-term consequences. Please. Um, I'm just wondering about the numbers of people who are being um, detained. How reliable do you think sources are for these numbers, and is there a sense of what percentage of these numbers are people being kept for 20 days, and what percentage of these numbers are people being kept for significantly longer than that? Can, can I add on to this really, I think, uh, important question um, with a, uh, an addendum, which is that uh, my, my conversations with friends in China a few weeks ago, where this topic came up, most of them were aware of the detentions, but they also didn't believe the numbers. They said, well, there may be a few, a few people are being locked up, but, but probably they deserve it. Uh, or uh, the government you know, is, is sincere in its effort to try to stem uh, extremism and mm -hmm. so forth. And the numbers that we are hearing of a million people, that's just not possible. And since, as you say yourself, the numbers are extremely un unreliable, we get to this point of where your numbers are as good as my numbers, and we just don't know, right? Very good point. Um, there are no reliable numbers. The only thing that I would say, the reason why I um, give a conservative lower estimate is because uh, we have puzzle pieces. We have a very incomplete puzzle. We have no hard numbers, really. But if we take together the information of the structure of the system from previous years and the evidence from the tenders and um, all kinds of other things and an anecdotal evidence, we have some 
data on the size of facilities. We have some piecemeal data on dormitory sizes, square meters. Then somebody else, uh, three or four eyewitnesses, talk about how many people were in one room, how big was that room, so how many people can sleep there per square meter, etc., etc. We got all these pieces, and one can put them together to an extent and say, well, it's very unlikely that it's less than this or that. And then if you look at visitor reports of people who say missing people, you piece all of that together, but it still remains a very incomplete puzzle. And there's no hard data to say it's definitely at least a million or more. But That's several, several hundred thousand is... I'd be very surprised if it would be less than one or two hundred thousand. That's my, my low conservative minimum, uh, which of course is again subjective and I need to defend it, but I'm willing to defend it. But um, yeah, anything else is, is uh, there's no hard numbers on that. We have time for one last question here. Hi, Charlotte Eichels, Fairbank Center. I'm just wondering how other minorities are viewing this. Like what's the, how are the Tibetans looking at this? The number of independent uh, public opinion surveys in China in recent times is unfortunately very low. And uh, <laughs> since I have not personally sp spoken or have talked to those who have spoken to Tibetans on the ground and what information they have, I really am not sure how much the Tibetans, for example, even know. Because the information they would get, see a lot of the information is through networks. Now the Hui and Ningxia, they are much more aware of the situation because they have connections, right? So within either the same ethnic group, and there are many Hui Muslims in Xinjiang, um, or within the same religious group, you have all kinds of connections and networks and information flows informally. And the uh, Hui and Ningxia are very concerned about what they call the Xinjiangization of Ningxia, meaning that the same sort of uh, methods will be applied eventually and increasingly in their province. So they're acutely aware and acutely concerned, and of course, there are significant first signs of some of this occurring. But um, you have some anecdotal um, evidence from the Han Chinese, which uh, I've heard very similar, and that would be a typical attitude. Um, other minorities, that's very interesting. Now, I have done a lot of research on the Tibetans, on their attitudes towards other religions, especially other ethnic groups, and the Tibetans, um, one can safely say truly hate the Muslim ethnic groups around them. Truly hate is the best way to put it. And their religion and what their religion makes them believe and do and everything. Um, so I would not expect the Tibetans to be particularly favorable or sympathetic with uh, what is going on. Less, of course, they fear that similar things might happen uh, to them. So that brings us to our time. Uh, before I uh, draw this completely to a close, I'd like to point out that although there have been many reports in the media, Western media, in recent weeks and months about the unwillingness of American academics and American academic institutions to take on tough topics regarding China, and that we are uh, cowed and afraid and uh, dare not offer any criticism, however, uh, uh, however framed, 
that today's event and other events that have happened at the Fairbank Center this year and that have happened in the past and that will happen in the future uh, are evidence that uh, we remain uh, as committed as always uh, to uh, looking uh, at uh, situations in the uh, uh, in, in the bright light of, of facts and of what can be known and, and acknowledging what we can't know uh, and uh, calling the situation as, as we see it uh, as unpleasant uh, as, as it might be. And it's been, indeed been a, a sobering 90 minutes, uh, but I think uh, we're all uh, uh, much better informed uh, about the situation uh, in Xinjiang uh, as a result, and I'd like to extend uh, thanks on behalf of everybody at the Fairbank Center, everybody here in, the, in this room, uh, to uh, Dr. Zenz for his presentation today. Thank you very much. Thank you. For having me. Thank you.